The scripture today is Romans 9, 1 through 5, 30 through 33, and then Romans 10, 1 through 4. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Vicki. So good morning. Uh, good to see all of you. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here, so I'm pulling double duty this morning, uh, and which means it's chaotic up here uh, for me. So thanks for your patience uh, with that. Uh, praise God that he continues to add to our number, especially among our children. Uh, we did some, so the pastors in our, um, in our little network did some reflecting and praying this week about the fact that uh, the studies show that um, that so uh, small a, pr- a, minor- a minority a percentage of uh, millennials and below are sticking with the faith. We got a lot of work to do, right? Uh, but God is faithful, uh, and so thank you, Misty, to, for the work that you do and those of you who work over there. I, it gets me every time. I, I really couldn't do it when Abby. If you weren't here when Abby did it, I was a blubbering idiot, and so I, it just really makes me emotional. I'm very, I just am very thankful to God that he is faithful, that those baptized children, that, that we've seen uh, the, the fruit of our prayers, uh, that God has brought them to himself. What a great thing. It's what Paul desires uh, for his people too. Uh, that sense of, if you're a parent, I think you know what it's like, to that sense of that anguishing and great burden for the, for the souls of your children. Uh, it's the way I feel for mine and, and even for yours too. Paul felt that for his people. And that's what really this passage is about. If you remember, we were in this last week, we're here again, and I told you if you're here, it's really a two-part sermon, so I went long last week, which means I'm going to go short this week. You believe me? No? Okay, we'll see. We're going to try really hard, okay? I want you to see and be reminded of what the context of this, this important passage in Romans 9, that can get kind of tricky, to be honest with you. Uh, remember the context. Paul's heart's breaking for the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, who, even though they were given special place in God's plan for the world. That's what 9, 4, and 5 are about. Even though that's true, they failed to believe. The cornerstone, we're told in that quote, 
uh, in the middle of the, of the passage, the cornerstone became to them a stumbling block. That's chapter 9, verse 32. A rock of offense, he goes on to say in verse 33. So for the sake of time, let me summarize all of that language. The cornerstone in the ancient world, in ancient architecture, was the first stone that was laid in a construction project. And then uh, it was the beginning of the foundation upon which the building was built. But you laid the cornerstone, and then every other rock was chiseled you know, to meet exactly with to fit with that cornerstone so the cornerstone was the you know the very first thing was the thing upon which everything else was built the cornerstone in the kingdom of Jesus is grace it really is and by grace I mean that we believe that the way to a relationship with God is not through what you do for him but rather what he does for you God's action in Christ not your moral record, not your family pedigree, not your ethnicity, none of those things. The whole of Christianity is built on this idea. It's the cornerstone. The Jews really, really miss this. What, what we're told in those verses is they were, they were scandalized by grace. If the cornerstone is grace, the Jews were scandalized by grace. That cornerstone that everything else is built on, for them, became a rock of stumbling. It became a stumbling block. That word is the, the Greek word scandalon. It became a scandal. So they were so offended by the idea of grace that they couldn't believe. Now, before we're too hard on them, okay, let's say we face the same danger today. There are a lot of religious people today who are not Christians. They're just religious because they're so scandalized by grace. And Paul had a heart for these people. And we should too. In fact, we do. I would say a lot of the best fruit that we've seen uh, in our church's history is not uh, just with unbelieving friends and families and neighbors, but with people who have spent their lives sitting in churches who would say something like, you know, I believe in God and I'm trying really hard to be good. Because that's not Christianity. It's just religion. And so one of the things we have to remember is that both irreligious and religious people need the gospel. And I particularly have a heart for the religious person, probably because that was me. We've seen a lot of people come to faith, not just from irreligion, not just from atheism, paganism, whatever it might be, but even from religion, from lifelong you know, church attendance and this sort of thing, who finally start to understand grace and something clicks. And it's what Paul desires. And really the key phrase, if you want to look at this whole passage, we want to zoom in on just one verse. And it's chapter 10, verse 3, where Paul says this. He says, of this people, here's their problem. He says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That was their problem. That was the, that was the issue. That was the, the core pinpoint issue for them. And that's what the sermon's really about. That in order to be a Christian, you have to submit to God's righteousness. I mean, those kids, those, those, those little ones that joined the church this morning, they were interviewed by elders of this church. Uh, and that's what, that's what we look for in those interviews. We don't, you know, it's not, do they, do they know the right answers? Because they can be coached in that, you know what I'm saying? It's not really even, are they good kids? The question is, can we sense whether or not they have submitted to the righteousness of God. So let's not make the same mistake that the Jews did here. Uh, they failed in the very place where we, uh, we must excel, and it's just in that phrase. So what does it mean then for us to not fail as they did, but to properly submit to, the, to God's righteousness? And there are three things, and I want to just really quick. 
there are really three parts. The first is that you have to recognize the root of all sin. You have to repent, secondly, of your righteousness. And then lastly, you have to rest in Christ. Recognize the root of all sin, repent of your righteousness, rest in Christ. Those are the three parts of what it means, I think, from this text to submit to the righteousness of God. So what they got wrong is what we need to get right so we don't fall into the same error as them. So let's just start. First then, what do I mean by recognize the root of all sin? Well, if you remember, walking through this text, Romans 9 is really a showdown between the man-centeredness of man and the God-centeredness of God. And who is going to win out? That's really the question. Will God become man-centered or will we become God-centered? I didn't print this part of the text because we looked at it in detail last week. But you remember the beginning of of Romans 9 is all about the doctrine of unconditional election. Uh, That salvation is a matter of God's choice and God's choice alone. And it's a controversial issue. But the reason it's so controversial, at least this is what I, I really believe this. I wholeheartedly believe this to be the truth. The reason is that it's so controversial is not because it's so hard to understand. The reason it's so controversial is it's so utterly God-centered. And we don't like that. I mean, just, let me just read Daniel 4, 35 uh, to you. Here's what, here's what it says there in Daniel. All the inhabitants... Let's just listen. Listen to this. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will in heaven and on earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? But just walk through that. I mean, that's the theology of Romans 9, and it's hard. But why is it so hard? Well, because it says, one, that we matter very little in the scope of what God is involved with in the world. Two, that's hard, isn't it? I mean, it also says that we have absolutely no say in how things go ultimately, and that's hard. Thirdly, it says, if we disagree with how God is going about his business, there's nothing we can really do about it. And fourth, we really don't have any right to question or complain because God has reasons for all that he does that are too great for us to comprehend as limited as we are. Now, all of that, what happens is, you read that, all of that insults our pride. Who are you, O man? Right? Chapter 9, verse 20. Who are you, O man? That's the question. That we're left to ponder. That's where Romans 9 takes us. Who are you, oh man? Who do you think you are to talk to God this way? And what's, what's fascinating is, is, is we went through it last week, and again we pick it up this week. Paul doesn't untangle all our concerns. He goes through this whole section, 9, 10, and 11 here in Romans. And he ends in chapter 11, verse 36, with really what is the summary of everything that he said in those three chapters with this phrase. He says, well, at the end of the day, from him... And through him and to him are all things. It's all about him. He is the beginning. He is the middle. He is the end of everything. The Lord is great. He can do whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. Psalm 135. Man, it's hard, isn't it? You feel it, I hope. I mean, every parent knows, at least they should, that there are times when the best answer to a child's question, why, is what? Because I said so. And what that's meant to do in the parent-child relationship is signal the end of the conversation. Right? Why? Because I said so. What, what do you say to that? I mean, how, what is the answer to that? There is no answer to that. End of conversation. I mean, if your seven-year-old demands an answer from you to every question, let me just say, you got a big problem. 
There are some things a parent knows that the child can't possibly know, right? I mean, there are reasons they can't understand. So the child in the parent-child relationship doesn't obey because they understand. They obey because they're the child. So the parent-child relationship only works if the child is parent-centered. And that's hard for the kid a lot of times. It's hard to be little. You with me? Do you remember what that was like? It's hard to be little. It's hard to feel powerless. It's hard to be little in a world of grown-ups. And that's part of what we get at in this text. The Bible defines sin like this. It defines it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, as a desire to be like God or to be God. In other words, a desire for limitless power and authority, all those things, the limitless power and authority that God enjoys, to not be confined by all the limitations of our humanity. And we're going to talk about this. This is actually what we're going to do all summer long, which I'm really excited about. But sin is, sin is wanting to be the omni. Joe stole my thunder a minute ago. It's wanting to have just omni tattooed across your chest, right? Omnipotent. Right, wanting to do it all, omni omniscient, wanting to know it all, omnipresent, wanting to be everywhere for everyone. We want these things for ourselves, is what is what we're told from the Bible. But of course, we are constantly frustrated because we can't be any of those things. We don't have the capacity for that. And so the next best thing, if we can't be like God, the next best thing is to make sure that if we can't have it, then no one else can either not even him. So when we come to the realization we can't be like God, the next strategy is to demand that God be more like us. That he be confined to the limits of our understanding and our authority and our finitude. And it's hard to be as God-centered as God is. It's much easier to fashion him to be as man-centered as we are. And that's what you have in this text. That's really what's it. That's really what we're grappling with here in Romans chapter 9. And there are two ways I think we do this that I just want to touch on. Uh, reflecting a little further on this chapter before we get into the, the details of, of chapter 10. Two ways. First, I think we can, we just kind of, just to make you aware of, of ways you may not be aware that we, that we do this, that we really struggle with this kind of all-out God-centeredness. And the first is when we complain and we question when we should wonder at mercy. We're very prone to complain and to question when in reality what we should, we should just go around wondering at mercy all the time. Uh, if the doctrine of Romans 9, in summary, is God saves, and God saves some and not all. And the, and the objection to that that comes as you go throughout that passage is, well, that's not fair. That's not fair, some say. And it's an utterly, it's an utterly man-centered objection because, in truth, God owes us nothing. It's not a problem that only some are saved. It's a wonder that any are saved. It's an absolute miracle if it's a matter of what we deserve, we deserve wrath and curse because of our sin. Yet though he is in no way obligated to us, though he is eternally, he eternally experienced perfect blessedness within his own Trinitarian life. Without creation, without any of us, out of concern for our good, God conceived the plan for our salvation, sending the Son into the world to save us. Ungrateful entitled people like us who would question him because he did not do it the way we think he should. 
He is, and then we're told he's patient with us in our unbelief, not wanting that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that all of the days of our lives are an unending, an unending credit reel of his kindness for all of heaven and earth to see. He's displaying the manifold glory of his riches of his grace and kindness to us. I mean, that any get mercy is a wonder. And, and if that doesn't land on you, if it doesn't land on you to say, wow, that really is the truth, then, then one of the problems you have is you're too man-centered. Paul in Philippians 2 says, do everything without grumbling or questioning. I mean, does that just, I mean, is that just like a knife in the heart, isn't it? Okay, it's just me. Good. I mean, that's, y'all do this to me all the time. Like, don't make me feel like I'm alone, okay? It's a vulnerable place to be up here. I know, I know. I walk with you. I talk with you. You guys complain and grumble too, right? We all do. And you just, that one verse can just slay you because you realize if you ever want to, you know, all sin is falling short of the glory of God. Just go to Philippians 2.14. Do nothing without grumbling or complaining or questioning. Paul says, because grumbling is saying to God, you got it wrong. And it destroys wonder. It just destroys wonder. I mean, God has reasons for doing things that he, that he does. And the text says that the reason ultimately is his glory. He judges to the display of the glory of his power and righteousness. He saves to the, dis the display of the glory of his mercy. And when Paul starts to consider all that, it leads him to worship because he loves it that way. And we should too. But the second thing is, so we, we, tend, to, we tend to complain and question when we should wonder at mercy. And then the second thing we tend to do that really displays our, our unsettledness with how, how God-centered God can be or is, is when we argue and we demand explanation when we should submit to revelation. This is the other issue here in Romans 9, right? So very quickly, there are two ways we do that. Uh, and I want to just, I want to make sure, because this is, I think this was kind of left hanging from last week. I want to make sure that I say this. And there are two ways that we can fail to submit to revelation and, and instead argue and demand. And the first would be to come to a passage like Romans 9, and I know this is big picture, and to say, you know what? Um, there's no mystery. Everything's black and white. You should be dogmatic about everything, right? And the teaching that we said last week is that there is mystery here. How does God's sovereignty and human responsibility intertwine? You know, and it's, it's mysterious and it's beyond us and we can't understand it all. And so the, the more God-centered you are, the more you will be able to embrace and even enjoy mystery. But there's another way that we can not submit to the revelation and argue and, and, and demand instead. And that is to say, one is to say there's no, there's no mystery. The other thing is to say there's only mystery. That, that you can't be dogmatic about anything. That there's revelation and you submit to revelation even when you don't understand it or you don't like it. Right? There are, there are, uh, there are, there's revelation. You submit to that. Then there is the secret things of the Lord that belong to him that haven't been revealed. And you have to be okay with saying, like Paul does at the end, Oh, the depth of the riches, of the wisdom, and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. This is not all mystery. There is revelation here. And it's revelation that's meant to put us in the dust. Because the root of all sin is man-centeredness. So be careful. Search your heart for that. Look and see where you can find that. So to submit to the righteousness of God, you first have to recognize the root of all sin. Now, I know you're thinking, he said he was going to be short today, and this is not panning out that way. We're going to be a lot quicker from here, I promise. You got to see. See, you got to see. I got to see. We got to see the way we desire to minimize God and magnify ourselves and thus rob him of his glory. And one of the ways we do that 
is the second thing here is to, is to refuse to submit to God's righteousness and instead to try to work up some kind of righteousness of our own. So the second thing you got to do is you got to repent of your righteousness. So first, right, recognize the root of all sin. Second, repent of your righteousness. And I want to really focus on the phrase in verse 3 of chapter 10, seeking to establish their own righteousness. So look there at that verse. Here's what we're told of these people that Paul's so, um, so just gripped in anguish over. He says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So he says, there is, on the one hand, God's righteousness, the righteousness of God, the righteousness that comes from God. And they, these people, were ignorant about this righteousness of God. They didn't know they could get a righteousness that way is what Paul means. And so they tried then, on the other hand, to establish their own righteousness. Or they, they tried to get right with God by something that's coming from them, right? They're trying to work it out on their own through their moral effort and achievement. And so we're told the Jews, they had the law, but they didn't get righteousness because they made a fatal mistake. Chapter 9, verse 32. You see it? Chapter 9, verse 32. Here's their fatal mistake. They did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. So what we learn is what we've been seeing all along as we've gone, we should know this by now, right? But Paul keeps coming back to it. Why do you think that is? I mean, he's been saying this for eight chapters. Why say it again? It's because our hearts are so hard. And we, and we fight against this so much that righteousness, being right with God, rightly related to God, is not by, is not by works, it's by faith. It's a gift of God, not a wage you earn. And to pursue righteousness by faith means that you have to stop pursuing it as if it were based on works. You have to come to a place where you realize it's impossible to establish a righteousness of your own. Uh, And that's that's where you meet him. I mean, if you believe, excuse me, if you're going to church and you're trying to be as good a person as you can, if you say, I believe in God and I'm just doing the best, you know, I'm doing the best I can to live a good life, that's not enough. What's happening with that person is they're, in trying to do good, this is the thing, this is the irony, in trying to do good, they're actually moving further away from righteousness. There's only one way to get the righteousness you need, and it's to submit to God's righteousness. And to do that, you have to admit that you have no righteousness of your own. See, a a religious person... So a person, typical person in the pew in a church, you spent your whole life going to church and so forth, a religious person repents of their sins, and then they try to establish their own righteousness. So they think the solution to their badness is their goodness. Now, do you see how utterly man-centered that is? I'm the problem, I'm the solution. I'm the problem, I'm the solution. It's all about me. I'm at the center here. And that's, what, that's, that's a religious person. A Christian is different. And the difference is that a Christian not only repents of their sins, but a Christian is a person who, because they've become awakened to these things, they also repent of their righteousness. And for a lot of people, a lot of people, what keeps them from faith is not their sins, it's actually their good works. I mean, isn't that ironic? what happened to Israel. Look at 9, go all the way up to the beginning at 9 verses 4 and 5. It's a spiritual resume of sorts that we're given there in those verses. 
for the whole nation. They had the adoption, verse 4. They had the covenants, verse 4. They had the law. They had the promises. All of these advantages. Paul just goes on to list all the things that were to their advantage. They had correct theology. They were good, moral people. You hear that? They had correct theology. They were good, moral people, and it didn't get it get anywhere. It didn't get them anywhere. It didn't get them anywhere with God. In fact, it became for them a spiritual liability. A Christian repents of sins and righteousness, and that means that if you do good, you don't think, man, you know, I did pretty good. I'm a good person. <laughs> if you, you do good and you say to yourself, you know, this good thing, this good thing that I've done is filthy rags. It isn't good enough to become a righteousness for me. And then you turn away from the impulse to trust your own good works and look to Jesus instead, not only in all the bad things, but in all the good things too. You need Jesus to redeem not only your sins, you need him to redeem your good works too. And that's what it means to pursue righteousness by faith, to know that it's God's righteousness that you need, the righteousness accomplished by the obedience of Jesus Christ that God gives to us as a gift for all those who know they are naked and come to him with grace. Now, you need to know how sneaky your heart is in this, okay? This is the point that I want to make. Your heart is always looking, and mine too. We're always looking for some way to sneak works in the back door. And here's where I come across this the most. I, I, I talk to people, uh, and I have to, you know, they start talking, and I become concerned by the way they're talking, and I have to kind of stop and say, okay, let me just ask a question. Is salvation from God, or is it from you? And usually the answer is, well, you know, it's from God, of course, but I still have to believe it. I mean, I have to accept it. And then, okay, okay, follow-up question. Question number two. So here's my second question. Is the faith to accept what God has done, is that from God or is that from you? It got really quiet all of a sudden. <laughs> See? Because if you say it's from you, then you're right back to salvation by works. You've turned faith into a meritorious work. And so J.I. Packer, in the introduction uh, he wrote to Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will, which Luther believed that really the whole crux of the Reformation was, was Luther really believed that it really was based on how you answer that question, that second question. And J.I. Packer wrote this. He said, to rely on oneself for faith is no different in principle from relying on oneself for works. And one is as unchristian and anti-Christian as the other. So where does your faith come from? From you or from God? If you answer you, you're right back into works, you see? And if you answer God, you're back to the doctrine of election. So last week I said that divine sovereignty and human responsibility always go together and that we should never emphasize one over the other. And, I, and that's really true, except in this one thing, in this one issue of man's role, excuse me, the role of man's will and salvation. Uh, we, when I say we, our confessional standards believe in human responsibility, but we don't necessarily believe in free will, as most people talk about it anyway. And let me just explain. This is getting theological, and there's really no way around it in this text. But in the, in the third and fourth centuries, a monk named Pelagius began to teach that in the church that man was born with free will, like Adam in Genesis, that, 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 man was, that, that sin did not destroy uh, the goodness in man. It just kind of you know, stunted him a little bit. And so salvation was really determined by how he used that freedom, whether he obeyed God or not. And, and he really gained a hearing and gained some ground, but eventually the church condemned it as heresy because uh, the church really saw that it essentially was teaching that man saves himself. 
Pelagius's opponent was Augustine, who taught the doctrine of total depravity. He said man is free to choose whatever he most desires, but that's actually the problem. That his desires, our desires naturally are so bent away from God because of sin, so left to himself, no one, left himself, no one, he would never love God or choose to obey him. So God must first do a work in man's heart. And therefore, he said, you know, look at the scripture. Repentance and faith are, are a gift. They come from God. We are, Ephesians 2, that's why we read the passage. We are dead in trespass and sins, and God comes to make us alive. And out of that new life come faith and repentance from the heart. But it's from a heart that's been healed. So you come to Acts chapter 13, verse 48. You can look at it later. And Paul says there he's preaching. And then Luke, Luke adds the comment to Paul's preaching because people came, and it's Billy Graham crusade, right? People just came flooding down the altars, I guess, or whatever. And here was Luke's editorial comment. He said, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, it doesn't say those who believed were appointed to eternal life. It says those who were appointed to eternal life believed. That's the doctrine of unconditional election. Now, why belabor this? I mean, th we did this. Why are we, why are we talking about this again today, Right? I'm not trying to win a theological argument. I'm being a pastor. I have pastoral concerns, and here they are. If you believe what makes the difference in salvation is what you do, if you really believe it comes down to you, then in, even in some small way, you are still seeking to establish a righteousness, righteousness of your own. And Paul says that it will cause you to miss out on eternal life, and I don't want you to miss out on eternal life. So the ultimate test of whether you believe salvation is what God does or what you do is really what you believe about this doctrine of unconditional election. If you have a problem with the doctrine of election, let me just say, if you have a problem with the doctrine, make sure it's not that you have a problem with grace. The issue is grace. Frederick Buechner, who's just great, you read anything that he's written, I would suggest, he defined grace like this. He said, uh, here's how he defined grace. There is nothing you have to do. There is nothing you have to do. There is nothing you have to do. There's only one catch, he said. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you'll reach out and take it. But maybe being able to reach out and take is a gift too. So in order to submit to God's righteousness, you have to first realize the root of all sin. Secondly, you have to repent of both sin and righteousness. And then let me just finish. And the third thing is, all of that leads to this resting in Christ. And that's how you know. That's really how you know whether, whether you're repenting of, of just your sin or of your righteousness too, if you're resting in Christ. So look at verse 4, chapter 10. For Christ, Paul ends, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And that word end is the Greek word telos. Christ is the telos of the law for righteousness. And the word telos means the goal, or better, the destination. It's the terminus. So, you know, a lot of you are going on summer vacation this summer. You get in the car, you start driving, you keep driving until you get to your destination. And then when you get to your destination, do you kind of sit in the car and just kind of hang out? You've been on the road for 15 hours. Yeah, let's just hang out. The car's fun. Woo! What do you do? Get out of the car as fast as you possibly can. Why? Because you've arrived at the destination. You don't need the car anymore. The trip's over. That's the metaphor. The telos of the law was Christ. The law was like a car, like a train, taking you somewhere. It was taking you to Christ, Paul says. Uh, and, and when you get to Christ, you get off the train. That's what Paul's saying. 
Jesus is the end of the law. We don't obey all the rules about sacrifices in the Old Testament anymore. Why? Because Jesus Christ was offered as a sacrifice for sins once for all, the Bible says. There's no need for sacrifices. The, the, the sacrifices reach their telos in him, and so there's no need for them anymore. What does it mean for us? What does that phrase mean ultimately for us? And I want to just finish with these two thoughts. First, Christ is the end of the law, but notice it says for righteousness. Don't miss that last part. Paul does not say that Jesus is the end of the law. He doesn't say no more law. Jesus said himself, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. So we don't obey the law anymore to get righteousness. We obey to express our love and gratitude to God and and to others. Totally different motivation. That's what Paul's getting at here. And really what that means is it means that the character of discipleship in, in Christ is this idea of rest. Do you remember what Jesus said? Matthew 11, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. Anybody weary and heavy laden? Just me again, good, that's great. I, I am. I am. Man, I really am. Pray for me, I, really, I feel that. Uh, I could talk about that more, but I, we won't do that today. Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. He says, see, there's work, there's a yoke. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tie a yoke. And the yoke, of course, was the thing that went around the ox that, you know, he could pull, you know, the cart with and all that stuff. So there's work. There's a yoke. But Jesus says the yoke is light, not because there's less to do. But because the righteousness Jesus gives before you even begin the work lightens the burden while you do it. So you don't have to strive to prove yourself. You don't have to succeed to provide for, your, for yourself or for those you love, because those things are already taken care of, see? So the question is, are you resting in Christ? The religious person says, I'm trying really hard to be good. <laughs> That's not resting. Are you still trying hard to be good? Or are you trying hard to live loved? The second is the, the issue of sanctification in the life of a believer. Not trying hard to be good, trying hard to be loved. Trying hard to live loved. What does life feel like right now? Is it a rush? Is it a heavy load? Let me just ask, why? Why? Is it because it's a particularly busy season? That might be the case. Or is there something else? See, that's the question you have to ask. Faith, if you noticed, I love it. We, what we asked those kids that were here this morning, faith is, are you resting? Are you receiving? Have you received? And are you resting in Christ for salvation? Are you resting? Uh, I hate the weather in Florida in the summer, but I love the pace. And it's been great. Even the last week, I've noticed this calm that's come over our house this past week or so. Anybody else? Like the slowness? I mean, May stinks. I hate May. May is my least favorite month of the whole year. I want to quit my job by the time I get to the end of May. I just, I hate May. The last week of May particularly, right? Finals week. Isn't finals week stressful, students? You with me? Right, the big test is coming. The big test is coming, and you got to study for it, and everything hangs on the big test. And a lot of us, we live our Christian life like in that moment all the time. But what's happened in my house the last couple of weeks is the test is done. Right, and for my kids, it's like I don't care if it's a D or an A; it doesn't matter. It's over. That's all I care. Right? <laughs> there's some sense of just there's relief knowing the test is over. But what if you knew the test was over and it was 100% across the board? What would that feel like? Oh, I can finally relax. 
I can sleep in. It just feels different, doesn't it? That's what Paul says discipleship to Jesus is like. Are you there? Are you resting? The old hymn writer, I think, sums it up really well. He said, he contrasted his experience. He said, in my previous life versus coming to faith in Jesus, then, he said, then all my servile works were done a righteousness to raise. But now, freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose his ways. Makes all the difference in the world. So let's pray and come to this table to rest. Will you pray with me? So, Father, as we come now and share this meal together, would you, where we are, where we are heavy laden and weary, would you speak rest to our souls? I know, I know, it's my own stubbornness. I confess that. I, I confess that, that I do not take you up on the offer of rest. I, I throw burdens on my own back, and it's because of my unbelief. And so, Father, I am the one this morning who cries out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Uh, and I need reminder after reminder after reminder of that because I'm so prone. I am so prone like these people that you talk about here to not submit to the righteousness of God, to not think that the righteousness that you've provided for me in Jesus Christ is enough and to think that I've got to add something to it. How foolish. So forgive me. Forgive us. Uh, thank you for this great reminder where we are still so prone to forget and to think otherwise that you force before our eyes in the celebration of the sacrament, your body broken for us and your blood shed for us, that we might turn away, repenting not only of our sin, but also of our righteousness and come to you naked for dress, come to you with open hands saying, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That really should be the song we sing. In fact, it will be the song we sing as we celebrate at this table this morning. But fill us with joy and hope and peace in what is promised to us in this meal. Overthrow our unbelief that we might rejoice in you. Freely chosen in the Son to freely choose his ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the word goes to us this morning that all who would call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. O ye despairing sinners, come and trust upon the Lord. Call upon his name. Uh, know that as you're sent now into the world that you go, not going on your own, but going with the power and the presence of the Spirit. If your faith is in Jesus, that's the promise. He sends us and says, even though I sent you, I'm going with you. And so receive the word of this benediction. Don't go trying to prove yourself. Don't go trying to Establish a righteousness of your own. Go knowing that if your faith is in him, he's given you the righteousness you need. Now go, work, but work and rest for his glory. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.